Uh, the attendance sheet is a little bit different than usual because I'm asking you to sign your name again, like right next to where you did before because I'm using the same, same uh, attendance sheet twice. So you'll see that I put a little arrow for today's date and you can just sign it when it comes around next to where you signed it before. Should be self-explanatory. Um, okay, so uh, I was gonna say, maybe you've seen, you've probably seen Canvas and I, you know, we posted the grades uh, for the exam early this morning and um, I brought the exams with me and I'll, at the end of class, I'll give them back to you. And um, uh, as I said on Canvas, the grader came up with a really helpful set of abbreviations and then gave you a bunch of feedback in the exam. So if you have questions about why you got the grades you did, the explanations are given in abbreviations in the exam next to the pertinent places. And then on Canvas, in the announcement I posted today, you can see the abbreviation key. Uh, the other thing I was gonna say is that, you know, the reason I made this first exam early and not worth that many points is so that if you stumble on this first exam, it doesn't tank you for the course. It just you know, means that you have to readjust uh, to get things figured out before the midterm because the, the second exam will be worth a lot more points. So, so you want to get all this figured out. If you didn't do well in the first exam, it doesn't hurt you that much because it was only worth 90 points. And so even an F gets you a fair amount of points and so you end up not losing that many points. And, uh, but you'll wanna get things figured out. And I, in the announcement I posted today, I gave you some advice for what to do if you feel like you need to readjust. So check out that announcement. And uh, also, um, uh, I've been talking to a few people about offering an extra credit thing. And so I'll do that too. And the extra credit thing that I've been talking about is a one-time thing of giving people 30 points for coming to any philosophy for lunch session, which is every Thursday at 11.30 a.m. to 12.30 p.m. And it's always, I always have it advertised on Canvas in an announcement. And I'll ask you to do two, three things. Uh, for the 30 points. Um, first, well, either at the session or after the session, send, either give me a piece of paper at the session, at the end, the philosophy for lunch session, or later email me the following. Your name and date. In your own words, describe one of the main points that was discussed at the session, and then ask a question about the topic and that's it and just and that'll get you sort of engaging with the session in the way that people normally do obviously you can come to as many philosophy for lunches as you like but i'll only give you 30 points for one but that'll give you a way also to get some points if you had a hard time with this exam um, any questions about that philosophy for lunch thing i mean the location and the topics are always mentioned, actually I'll tell you about the one coming up this uh, next Thursday. Uh, we have a, there's a kind of philosophy called the philosophy of science. Actually, I mentioned at some point that philosophy, uh, you can think of what philosophers do, one way to think of it is in terms of topics. 
And there are sort of three main areas that philosophers work in. Metaphysics, ethics, and epistemology, which is theory of knowledge. Philosophy of science is a subfield in epistemology. And philosophers of science look at the methods that scientists use, and they consider issues that scientists are not self-reflective about. And so this particular, uh, we have a philosopher of science, a faculty member in our department, who's actually the chair right now, Kirk McDermott. And Kirk is, you know, amazing. And here's the session he's going to give uh, next Thursday. It's called, Why is Science So Successful? And I'm going to read you this short description because it's interesting. He says, science is undeniably successful both in its products and its ability to help us to understand much of the complexity of the world around us. What is the secret of that success? Is it just a mysterious, miraculous, magical formula of inquiry? Or can philosophers help to point to concrete reasons or features that explain this success? In this week's Philosophy for Lunch, two philosophical views, realism and anti-realism, attempt to account for science's achievements. So a really interesting session on the success of science and scientific method uh, next Thursday. But we have a variety of different topics, and I'll let you know about the other topics as they come up. I think I mentioned before that every Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m., our majors and minors have a philosophy club. And it's a, a meeting where they talk about various philosophical issues and uh, it's a nice place to sort of meet philosophy majors and minors and see what they're like and sort of check out the community. They meet every Thursday from 2 to 3 at uh, Schmidt 242, Schmidt Hall 242, which is our seminar room. Remind me to stop this class about 15 minutes early to hand back exams, because I will probably forget. OK. Uh, then just one last thing I was going to say is that in the last uh, class, we had a really good coverage of some issues in philosophical reasoning, where we talked about evaluating arguments, assessing premises for their truth or falsity, and assessing whether or not a conclusion follows from premises. If you weren't here, check out that podcast episode because it was a really helpful um, session for, for, for reasoning. And uh, um, I just want to make sure everybody gets that for sure. Because in this class, sometimes the way we teach intro philosophy is to have a special section on logic. And instead of doing that, because it can be really dry. I'm trying to integrate some of these things into our discussion of other issues. So, so I'm just trying to flag that once in a while there will be something important about philosophical method and reasoning in the context of our discussion of these other issues. So don't miss that. OK, so let's start for real talking about the desire theory of well-being which is another theory of well-being. The first one we studied was hedonism. We're basically looking at this question, what makes for a good life? And we're using some of these terms a bit loosely because we're talking about different authors. Feldman 
didn't want to equate happiness and a good life. And so when we were discussing Feldman, we tried to keep the distinction clear and make sure to clarify that he's trying to say that maximizing pleasure leads to a good life. He doesn't want to talk about happiness. One reason is that he thinks it's a confusing term. Um, so, but when we turn to the desire theory of well-being, we're going to see now these philosophers using these terms interchangeably. They're going to be talking about happiness, well-being, and they're going to be talking about a good life. And we're going to more or less take those to be synonymous. We're going to be using all those terms for this uh, stage of our investigation into these issues to be about the same. Um, so, you know, the idea is that happiness and well-being we're taking now to mean the same thing, even though Feldman wanted to distinguish between the two. And we're just saying that a good life is a life where one is happy or enjoying well-being. Another kind of uh, flag of issue for you is that uh, in the reading, that you know, the, the first reading for desire theory is just this maybe, I think, four or five page uh, thing that has a bunch of passages on it that I put together from different authors. And one of the philosophers quoted in, those, in, that, in that reading is Julia Annis. And I just wanted to say a couple things about Julia Annis to help you um, to sort of inform your understanding of her position. Ultimately, Julia Annis is critical of desire theory. It also helps to know that Julia Annis is one of these people who uses happiness very broadly. And then finally, a key is that when Julia Annis refers to what she calls the smiley face feeling, and she's being disparaging, she means pleasure. She means, hap she means, she means hedonism. So when she says the smiley face feeling, she's talking about pleasure, and she's referring to hedonism disparagingly. She's not a desire theorist or a hedonist, and she's critical of both. Okay, we started last time just very briefly saying that the basic idea in desire theory, the basic idea of the desire theory of well-being is that these theorists maintain that having a good life is just to get what you want. That's the simplest way of thinking about it. We're going to be using desire and preference also as synonyms. So when you hear some of these thinkers talk about preferences, just read desires. Um, and in fact, we've already seen Feldman talk about preferences. I'll, I'll point you back to that. But there's an interest, really interesting passage in Feldman's, I think, first chapter. Yeah first chapter, where he refers to the desire theory by another name. I can't remember what he says, something like preference satisfaction theory or something like that. And he's talking about the desire theory. And he actually launches into a really effective criticism there. So we'll come back to that. Also, later on, we're going to read um, for next week uh, some passages by really one of the most well-renowned philosophers of, uh, you know, this era, 
uh, Martha Nussbaum. And Martha Nussbaum will be also be talking about preferences, but we're, we're thinking about this in the context of the desire theory of well-being. Okay, so one thing that came up last time, actually, I think intelligently, was this question of, uh, it sounds a lot like hedonism, desire theory. And, uh, you know, when you first learn about it, you kind of think, well, yeah, having my desires satisfied, how does that not end up being a kind of hedonism? So turns out that they're very different, but we, but we can sort of figure out how they're different by wondering explicitly about how they're different. Uh, so we'll do that now. And maybe the last thing I'll mention as a general point is that uh, the desire theory of well-being is the most common theory um, now, these days taken up not just by philosophers, but psychologists and uh, economists and other people who think about happiness or well-being, they, they tend to be desire theorists. So it's a, it's a really interesting theory to study for that reason, that it's so common. And I think for those of you who didn't get pulled into being hedonists, I think some of you will find desire theory very satisfying. Ultimately, what we're going to do, though, because ultimately we're going to launch some pretty effective criticisms against desire theory, and ultimately what we're going to do next after this is we're going to take a turn into asking a related but different question, which is what makes for meaningfulness in life. And so we're going to, it's a related way of thinking about the same issue of a good life but if you find hedonism and desire theory unsatisfying, which some percentage of you will, then we're going to look at these theories of meaning in life. And that's going to help to start to round out our consideration of a good life. And we're going to really focus on this theory by this really great contemporary philosopher called Susan Wolf. And Susan Wolf has a really great theory of meaning in life. Okay, but first, now for real. What we're going to do is begin to try to distinguish desire theory from hedonism. And we can do this to begin by emphasizing that some theories of well-being are subjectivist and some theories of well-being are objectivist. And it turns out that hedonism is an objectivist theory and desire theory is a subjectivist theory. And in order to start to think about this, I want to just say, I want to remind you what these terms mean, subjective and objective, because it turns out to be really important. And you want to have a really clear notion of what subjectivity means and what objectivity means, because we're going to be able to distinguish these theories that way. Um, so just if you looked it up in the dictionary, if you look it up, I mean, Sometimes I use the Oxford American, sometimes I use the Oxford English, depending on what they give me. Here's the definition of subjective in the Oxford American Dictionary. And this really works for us. Subjective is an adjective, right? And this is what it means. Based on or influenced by personal feelings, tastes, or opinions. That's what subjective means. Based on or influenced by personal feelings, tastes, or opinions. Objective, also an adjective, obviously, means not influenced 
by personal feelings or opinions in considering and representing the facts. So something that's objective tries to focus on the facts and avoids personal opinions, feelings. And so now what we want to do is take these two terms, subjective and objective, and think about the fact that you can sort these theories of well-being into a kind of subjective theory and an objective theory. But the terms are subjectivism. Desire theory is a kind of subjectivism, and hedonism is a kind of objectivism. And here's what that means. What it means for desire theory to be a form of subjectivism is that getting a good life has to do with your attitudes toward what you want. Actually, let's read something about that. Uh, if you look at our, our reading, the, the first main reading on desire theory, and if you go to page one, um, and this is the, I'm looking at this, um, this passage that's numbered 46b, but I'm looking at the second column. And if you go, and this is by Julia Annis, and if you go down three lines, she says, it is possible to think of happiness as desire satisfaction if we are prepared to think of happiness in the spirit of the suggestion that it is subjective as something on which each of us is the authority. I am happy if I think I am, since I'm getting what I want. For who could be a better authority than I am on the issue of whether I'm getting what I want? She's being sarcastic because she doesn't like desire theory, but that's a good description of why we think of desire theory as subjective. Again, desire theory is subjective because your desires depend on your own subjective attitudes about what you want. So that's a subjective thing. Objectivist theories, objectivist theories like hedonism, think about well-being in terms of what is intrinsically good. And, you know, for the hedonist, that's pleasure. So the particular kind of hedonism that we studied, DH, default hedonism, is an objectivist theory of well-being. I'm going to, in a minute, stop and we can chat a bit, but let me say a couple more things. That may seem kind of counterintuitive. I mean, it seemed counterintuitive to me when I first heard that because it seems like, well, pleasure is a really, it's a feeling, it's a subjective thing. So why is hedonism considered objectivist? And you can sort of, well, does anyone want to try to say why, why we might think that hedonism is objectivist? Let me see if anyone in the... I'm really going to try to bring in people in the back. I mean, one big tip I have for trying to really ramp up your performance in the class is really make sure to come to class having read the material and then ask questions and get involved in the discussion. That'll really rope you in, and that'll really help you. Um, but, let's, uh, but let's go ahead. Yeah, what do you think? Um, I was going to say that... 
And although what might bring an individual pleasure is subjective, yeah. that feeling is so specific that it is objective. But with desire theories, like you said, desires depend on the attitude. Yeah. And desires are not necessarily a niche, like specific thing. Okay. Yeah, you answered all the questions I have for the next like five minutes, so that's good. Um, yeah, so the first point is that hedonists say that pleasure is the good for everyone. That's an objective claim. So even though they're talking about something that is a feeling, pleasure, their claim is that pleasure is the good for everyone. So that's a very objectivist move. And the next, remind me of your name? Erica. Erica. Um, the next point that Erica made is that um, um, there's, a, there's room in hedonism for subjectivity. And you spelled this out nicely. If you remember, different people get pleasure from different things. And so you might get pleasure from something very different. You know, you might get pleasure from eating broccoli, and I get pleasure from eating peanut butter chocolate cupcakes, to be perfectly honest. And that's a subjective difference about attitude and preferences. But the bottom line of the theory of well-being, hedonism, is that eating peanut butter chocolate cupcakes or eating broccoli generates pleasure for me or you and the bottom line is the pleasure and maximizing pleasure is the bottom line for being happy according to a hedonist and that's an objective thing they're making an objective claim about a subjective feeling that's you know so that's why it's kind of tricky So the, so the subjective differences in hedonism rest on the differences of the pleasurable things in Feldman's terminology. Remember, Feldman distinguishes between pleasure itself, the feeling, and the things that give us pleasure. And he has this example, the warm soapy shower that he likes to talk about, which I don't find very pleasant to think about because I've met Feldman. You get my point. Um, not that he's a whatever. Question, let's stop for a second and see how we're doing. Um, you know, but the, and so the contrast case is that desire theory is, is, a, is a subjectivist theory because desires are subjective. We all have different desires. Satisfying those desires is the bottom line of the theory. And that's going to end up being subjective because we all have different desires and we're all going to get them satisfied. There's nothing objective lying at the bottom of the theory and the claim like there is for hedonism. Wait, like what? Like Oh. Yeah, we're going to, I mean... It's interesting. I mean, once we once we get kind of clear on the distinction between the theories, then we're going to explore criticisms, and it's really interesting to to do this work of thinking about because uh, there are going to be some criticisms that are going to be the same. But um, but let's not talk about criticisms yet because after we 
talk a little bit about clarification questions, then I want to talk about at least one reason for thinking that desire theory is correct. Yeah. Oh, okay, what you're thinking about is that there's a somewhat confusing passage in Feldman where he says something like that, but what he's trying to do is say we have to distinguish between pleasurable things and pleasure. And pleasurable things like eating cupcakes or broccoli has to be distinguished from pleasure itself, and then hedonism is going to focus on pleasure itself, the feeling. Yeah. So wouldn't that be desire theory if it's focused on pleasant things like because it's desire? Well, I mean, remember, hedonism, so, I mean, these are helpful questions because uh, it forces me to say these things in a different way. So these are good questions. Um, you could say correctly that I desire cupcakes and let's say you desire broccoli. If you're a desire theorist, when I eat cupcakes, that makes me happy because I satisfy my desires. And when you eat broccoli, that makes you happy because you satisfy your desires for a desire theorist. And so the bottom line of that theory of happiness is that you need to satisfy your desires to be happy. But for a hedonist, the reason it's important to separate pleasurable things like eating cupcakes from pleasure itself is that their bottom line about happiness is pleasure itself. And they say maximizing pleasure itself is what makes you happy. And different people will do that by enjoying different pleasurable things but the bottom line of the theory is the claim that maximizing pleasure makes you happy, and that's true for everyone. Whereas desire theory acknowledges, the reason it's a subjectivist theory, it acknowledges that different people are gonna have different desires, so the bottom line for desire theory is subjectivist because the bottom line is taking into account everybody has different desires. It's a tricky, it's a tricky distinction, and your question is good because it forces me to say it in a different way. But I bet I need to say it even more ways. So if someone asks, if you guys ask more questions, I'll try to keep doing it because it's tricky. Yeah. So does desire theory not take into account, like, like we were talking about how people have hedonism, they, they stretch out the timeline and talk about the whole life, and they avoid fulfilling certain desires yeah. in order to maximize pleasure. Yeah. Desire not maximize pleasure, but to satisfy desires. Well, for hedonism, it's for hedonism. Right. Right. Okay, yeah, there's a similar. Yeah, I'm sorry. Would desire theorists just act on what they want in the moment, or would they think long term? Yeah, this is a great question. And we, let's wait a bit because what you're doing is raising a criticism of the most basic kind of desire theory, which just says satisfy your present desires. And just like with the worry about vulgar sensualism, there's going to be some worry about, well, wait a minute, some of those present desires are not going to be good for the person in the long run. 
So then we have to tweak the, tweak the desire theory. So, so you're, you're articulating a criticism that will lead to an adjustment in desire theory to try to make it better in the same way that Feldman started out with this basic hedonism of William Frankena and then found some problems with it and then had to tweak it. So, but first we should just get really clear on the basic desire theory that just says happiness is satisfying your desires and we should, you know, we're pausing a little bit to try to understand how it's different from hedonism. You know, in a way we don't have to really completely feel comfortable with this distinction right now because we're going to continue to try to pull these apart. But I just wanted to stop for a second to see, you know, if you guys want to raise any questions. Yeah. So if, according to the desire theory, if, if you satisfy your desires, you have a happy life. Yeah. And according to hedonism, pleasure, if, you are, if you're having a pleasure life, that's the desire. Yeah. So if you are a desire theorist yeah. and you never satisfy your desires, but you're Having a happy life, what happens? Yeah, we ultimately have to worry about this. Is your your you're, again? You're you're articulating an interesting line of criticism against desire theory because we can imagine lives that are clearly good lives, but that what's going on in those lives is not just satisfying desires, and and so you're articulating a interesting another interesting down the road criticism of desire theory that I want to wait on but this is good <coughs> okay okay so now remember that the way that philosophy works I mean two things that I really love about philosophy one thing is that other fields of study don't tackle problems that they can't solve. And other fields of study have their methodology. And some problems can't be solved in other fields of study, and so they end up in philosophy. Problems leave philosophy when other fields figure out a way to address them within their own methodology. You know, So for example, a lot of problems left psychology left philosophy to go into psychology in the late 1800s. But, so my point is that we have this claim on the table in desire theory that happiness is satisfying your desires and we have to do what philosophers do to see if this is right. And remember that what philosophers do is they articulate a claim and they try to figure out, can we give any reasons to support this claim. And then once we do, then we consider criticisms, we try to reply to the criticisms, you know, so it's all about offering reasons for claims, considering criticisms, offering other reasons. That's the method of philosophy, and we have to employ that method when some other field can't address a question. And although you'll find desire theory being discussed in psychology and economics and other fields, they can't do the ground level assessment of whether or not that's a successful view theory of a good life. So we have to do it. So that's why now I want to just consider one, 
way of thinking about why desire theory might be right. So, again, the claim that we're assessing, desire theory says that well-being just is getting what you want. That's what desire theory says. Why think that that's right? I mean, in a way, it just seems kind of intuitively appealing um, that getting what you want makes you happy. I mean, doesn't that just seem like a kind of common sense, right-headed view that getting what you want makes you happy? There's something very commonsensical about it, and it seems hard to dispute that getting what you want makes you happy. It just seems kind of obvious in a way. That's what makes it kind of difficult to give a reason to support the claim of desire theory because it just seems so commonsensical. But here's a, an attempt. And here's what this philosopher Peter Railton says as a way of trying to support desire theory. He says that what's intrinsically valuable for a person must have a connection with what he would find compelling or attractive, at least if he's rational and aware. Again, this is just trying to unpack that intuition, that common sense intuition. What's intrinsically valuable for someone must have some connection to what's compelling or attractive to that person. And the key here is this idea of compelling or attractive. And to think about what another philosopher says, Chris Heathwood, he says that desiring is a way of finding something compelling or attractive. Or maybe desiring is a sort of a a sign that you find something compelling or attractive. And so this connects well-being to desire. The idea is it seems reasonable that what we find compelling is valuable for us, makes us happy. And so these philosophers are trying to connect this to say, if you buy that idea that what's intrinsically valuable for someone they find compelling, then you can say, well, that sounds like desire theory because finding something compelling is to desire it. And so it sounds like what makes us happy is what we find compelling. Anyway, something like that, you know, what we're trying to do is figure out some way to unpack that kind of seemingly intuitive but kind of opaque intuition that satisfying your desires makes you happy. And that's one way to try to do it. But I'm not going to, you know, spend too much time on that. I just wanted to say that that's one way to try to offer a reason to support desire theory. I think the more forceful support for desire theory is just how commonsensical it seems. But there's a way to try to unpack it, and I just wanted to mention it. Um, and let's then talk about more on the difference between hedonism and desire theory um, by, by looking at a passage in the reading, which is 4.2f by uh, Roger Crisp. 
And I think this passage is a little bit unclear, so I'm just going to try to explain it. And again, what we're trying to do is understand the difference between desire theory and hedonism, and this is another way to do it. He says, and now I'm just going to quote the beginning, a desire theorist and a hedonist may agree on what makes life good. They may think it's pleasurable experiences. I mean, notice that a desire theorist might desire pleasurable experiences. And a hedonist is certainly going to desire pleasurable experiences. And so they might agree on what makes a life good, pleasurable experiences. And so it sounds like this is a place where these theories really start to get murky because they both take pleasure to be what makes life good. But here's the difference. And I'm, you know, again, we're trying to pull these theories apart. The hedonist believes that pleasure is the only intrinsic good. Whereas the desire theorist believes that pleasure makes life good because it's desired. I'll say it again because it's kind of this is kind of a famous way of reasoning, but it's really kind of kind of difficult to wrap your head around. But once you do, it's a bit of a aha gestalt moment. So the hedonist believes that pleasure is the only intrinsic good. We know that. Whereas even if a desire theorist thinks that what they even if a desire theorist, a particular person, desires pleasure, that desire theorist thinks that pleasure makes life good because it's desired, not because pleasure is the, in, you know, the one and only good. And if you get that, you can see that the desire theorist can't say that pleasure is the one and only good, or they would just be a hedonist. A desire theorist has to say whatever any person desires is good. And that makes their life happy. So you can see why desire theory is a subjectivist theory. Whereas if we take pleasure to be the good for everyone, we end up with hedonism. Let's linger on that for a second, because that really helps. I think you can get your head around it. That even if a desire theorist and a hedonist both think that pleasure is the way to go, the desire theorist says that pleasure is the way to go because I desire it. And they could just as easily not desire pleasure. They could desire something else. You know, the idea is that some people have desires that don't lead to a lot of pleasure. Maybe we should talk about that. Like, what are some examples of things that someone might desire that don't lead to a lot of pleasure, just so we can get some examples on the table. You know, what, what are some examples of desires where if you satisfy them, you're not going to end up with more pleasure than pain, or likely not? Yeah, it's true that you could be you could you could desire to to binge eat. You could satisfy that desire. 
And that's probably not going to lead to more pleasure than pain. Yeah. That's a good, way, a good place to start. I mean, what are some things that... Yeah, go ahead. Staying healthy. Sorry? Staying <clears throat> yeah, okay. Yeah, this is one I've had a lot of problems with over the years. Um, it's true that if you desire to be a person who stays up late, it's, there's a good bet that that's going to result in more pain than pleasure because, and I really, I have explored this through 20 years of bad life habits and maybe 30 years, 35 years. And um, the problem is that you can never squeeze enough time out of your nights and then your days are all, always start kind of bad because you end up sleeping late you know, and then you're just waiting for the night. And uh, do you know, do you understand? Because this is, this is a really interesting example because it really does seem true. Like every day you think, oh, I'm going to stay up late tonight and get to do all these things that I want to do. And that's the best plan. And you can satisfy that desire, but because of the day after day problem, uh, you could end up with more pain than pleasure. Uh, that, does, that seems reasonable to me. It's a really complicated example, but it seems reasonable. And I feel like I've lived it for 35 years. But the last like 10 years have been really good. I'm older than 45, so I have to, do, I have to fix my math. But the last 10 years, I've really gotten it organized. And it's just been a miracle. Uh, I mean, to be able to wake up and have normal days and to go to sleep at a normal time is amazing. And by normal time, I mean like one. Because I used to stay up until, you know, five, so, you know, often. And then sleep three hours and then stumble around and, you know, whatever. Bad. Don't do that. Other ideas of uh, satisfying desires that might not lead to more or probably won't lead to more pleasure than pain. Yeah. Yeah, this is a good kind of example. And the idea is, yeah, Olympic athlete, this person has a desire to achieve something that's really difficult. And if you add up all the pleasure and pain, there's going to be, end up being a lot more pain. Even if they get a huge amount of pleasure when they win something, there's still you know, a decade or more of painful days and hard work with some pleasure, you know. But that seems reasonable. That the, I'll bet we can come up with a lot of examples of difficult achievements that someone sets their sights on where if you add up all the pleasure and pain, there's going to be a lot more pain. I mean, I think of something like I just finished a book, you know, recently, and, and I've basically been right, working on this book for, you know, three, four years, hundreds and hundreds of hours of work. I, this is a little bit weird because I kind of enjoy that work, but it's not because it's pleasurable. I mean, I enjoy it. I like doing it, but not because it's pleasurable. And sometimes it's very painful. It feels good to finish it. It feels good when people read it, all that kind of stuff. But that doesn't, I don't think, outweigh the, the pains of the process. I think we can probably come up with a lot of examples. I was thinking also, too, of like, 
Anyway, so I think that's a good category of examples where someone has a desire to achieve something very difficult and it might not, it's likely that there won't be more pleasure than pain, but they desire it. And so satisfying that desire will make them happy according to desire theory, but not according to hedonism because they won't maximize pleasure. This is a little bit tricky because you have to really figure out how to accurately describe this kind of a life or this kind of a achievement. And I can imagine, so, I sort of hear someone like Feldman in the back of my head saying, wait a minute, you need to do a better job describing this life and then maybe you can describe it so it has more pleasure than pain, but I kind of think not. And then I was thinking of something like, I mean, maybe you can tell me, like, what about things like, what about athletic desires, like weightlifting or running? There's clearly a lot of pain involved, and some people love to run. I never, I ran for a long time, but I kind of always hated it, but did it anyway. And, um, but some people, I don't know, what about, what about like weightlifting? If you have, a desire to achieve certain goals, then satisfying those desires will make you happy according to a desire theorist. But isn't it maybe true that for a weightlifter, you end up with more pain than pleasure, even if you satisfy some of those goals, even though there's pleasure involved, like it feels good to be healthy and to be capable? Yeah. So then what if the pain gives that person pleasure? Well, then we really, I don't, I, can we talk? Do you want to talk about that for a second? Do you have a thought about that? No, it's something else. Oh, okay, so, because that, what if the pain, so that just sounds like now we're talking about someone who gets pleasure from pain, and that just, that, that, if we're talking about what I think we're talking about, that's just talking about pleasure coming from a certain thing, which is pain, like inflicting pain. So I don't, that might not be as complicated as it seems, because it might just be, I mean. Would they even consider it pain then? I mean, I've always hated it when professors, because they're old, when I was in school, talk about sex. But. This seems to me that that's what we're talking about. I don't know if we are, but that's what I'm thinking about. That like, if someone takes sexual pleasure from having, from getting pain, having painful things done to them, then that's just a, that's just a pleasurable thing for that person. You know, like eating chocolate cupcakes gives me pleasure. Someone who wants to have pain inflicted on them, that just gives them that thing inflicting pain gives them pleasure. I mean, that's my first shot at trying to simplify that because I think it might just be that simple. And so if you're describing weightlifting, I don't, and oh, I, yeah, this actually is a really interesting question because now I'm thinking of, there are some people, like take someone who is, um, if you explore the kind of, there's a kind of a psychological disorder. I mean, I don't want to classify 
S&M as a psychological disorder. And so that's not what I'm going to talk about. But I'm talking about something like take somebody who thinks that they deserve to be punished. You know, they, they have a, a psychological issue where they think that they're not good in certain ways and that they deserve to be punished. Someone like that might, be, might take pleasure in the pain of exercise because they think, because of this mental issue, that they don't deserve uh, to be happy or something. And that's a kind of complicated case where someone who has this feeling that they don't deserve to be happy or that there's, they're bad in some way, if they, they can use that in order to um, you know, do sports or something, and then in a, in a strange sort of way, take pleasure in the pain that the sport gives them, because there's this kind of mental psychological disorder that makes them not want to um, be happy ultimately. That's really complicated, but that also is something that your question's bringing up, but that's not what I think the ordinary weightlifter is going through, although someone could if they have this psychological disorder. So set that aside. The normal weightlifter is probably just someone who has these weightlifting goals, but it can be very painful to do this work. And so I think you can maybe make the case that that kind of person satisfying their desires of reaching these weightlifting goals and maybe reaching the goals of having a certain kind of body is painful. But satisfying those goals makes them happy. And they're a desire theorist, that person. Because if that person were a hedonist, they wouldn't do that because they want to ultimately mainly maximize pleasure. And so they wouldn't go beyond the weightlifting that maximizes pleasure. Well, it was kind of complicated, but it's a deep question. And I didn't want to give it short shrift. So have we talked enough about examples of satisfying desires that won't lead to more pleasure than pain? Oh, you were going to raise something else. Is it still, do you want to try it still? Was it another example of something that you might desire? It has something to do with the exercise. Mm. But it was like you made a small point and then I thought about it. But and yeah, so I sort of, yeah. Okay, well, then let's, let's try to go a little bit further. Um, Okay, let's talk about another similarity between hedonism and desire theory. Consider these, what we were talking about as objective goods and what Feldman calls objective goods. Things like friendship, knowledge, justice, maybe art. I said knowledge, freedom, did I say that? Um, if you're a hedonist or a desire theorist, these things that we take to be very important are only important for some other reason. If, if you're a hedonist, we've seen that freedom is only good because it gives you pleasure and only good when it gives you pleasure. If you're a desire theorist, freedom is only good if you desire it and you're satisfying some desire by having freedom. And, you know, this is 
a worry because the kind of common sense worry that you want to say, wait a minute, aren't these things just good in some rock bottom intrinsic way? Freedom, knowledge, justice. Aren't these things good in a way where we don't want to say they're good for something else, pleasure or satisfied desires? And so we can use that same kind of criticism of hedonism uh, against desire theory. Uh, let's look at page four of the, the reading for something kind of related. And this is the um, Chris Heathwood. So I'm, I'm looking at 145A on page four. And he says, when we are thinking just about ourselves and our interests, don't we want the things we want because they are good for us? But the desire theory suggests the opposite, that these things are good for us because we want them. It's a kind of related idea that when you're thinking about a good life, don't we wish that we could have the things that are just rock bottom good? And maybe these are things like freedom and justice and knowledge. But the desire theorist puts that twist on it and says, no, those things are only good because you desire them. Kind of a subtle point, but interesting. One of the other criticisms that comes up um, that Julia Annis puts forward in the reading that we did was that Julia Annis thinks that we should be able to compare people's lives by using a theory of happiness. And she's worried that with desire theory, you can't compare lives. You know, to say this person is leading a good life and this person is not. Because as long as people are satisfying their desires, they're leading a good life. But she thinks if you look at different lives, you should be able to say this life is better and the theory tells us why. And so she wants a theory of happiness that gives us some way of saying this life is better than this other life. Now, let's look at page one in order of this reading in order to see this. And she mentions, she's going to mention three people. And she mentions Bill Gates. And she's thinking of Bill Gates before he was a philanthropist, when he was just the, you know, leader of Microsoft. And so she's kind of thinking of Bill Gates, who's someone who just made a lot of money. And forget the fact that, forget the, the good of Microsoft or whatever, if you want to think about it that way. Just think about Bill Gates as someone who made a lot of money. So I'm looking at 46C, and I'm skipping the first sentence, and she says... We would have to hold, and she means if we accept desire theory, that anyone getting what he or she wants is happy, whatever the nature of the desire. Happiness would thus lose any purchase as an idea that could serve to rank or judge lives. Nelson Mandela, Bill Gates, and Madonna, thinking of the old singer, if they are all getting what they want, are all happy. So any comparative judgments about their lives cannot involve the idea of happiness. And she's worried about that. 
So, you know, you have one life that's really important for its, you know, achievements and justice, another life that's important for its financial success, and another life that's important for its fame. And each of these three people have satisfied their desires, and if you're a desire theorist, you have to say that these lives are equally good, at least in terms of happiness. And Julia Annis wants to say, wait a minute, there's something weird about that, because don't we want to say that these lives are different in a way that's relevant to leading a good life? And so she thinks that's a problem with um, desire theory. I mean, but, you know, truth be told, she's thinking that a theory of happiness should involve something like some notion of achievement or some notion of ethics. And that, that's what's really going on underneath. What's really interesting about the theory, we're going to do a, a, you know, another week on desire theory. And we're going to look at, um, you know, we have to fix the theory because the theory... So far, we've just been thinking of desire theory as a theory of current desires or actual desires. And we have to see how some of the criticisms get leverage against that simple theory and then consider some of the adjustments. And, um, but when we then turn to this theory of meaning in life by Susan Wolf, the really interesting thing that Susan Wolf does is she says that a good life has three dimensions, ethics, happiness, and meaning. And this is a really simple but amazing move that enables us to say a lot of things. So uh, I'm gonna, what I'm going to do now is uh, end there. But I'm going to tell you for next week, you know, and then I'm going to hand out the exams. But for next week, um, I remembered, which has impressed myself. For next week, um, read the other two PDFs in the desire theory Folder. They're both very short. Um, the second one is a very specific, almost case study written by Martha Nussbaum about some different women in different social strata in India. And it's exploring a particular criticism of desire theory, but she's going to use the word preference. Uh, so notice that she's going to talk about something that, that Julia Annis worries about in our, the current thing we read about the way in which some desires can be defective. And, and Martha Nussbaum is going to talk about a social and political way that desires can be defective. So that's what she's talking about, even though she's talking about preferences.